All right. We are here with Dr. Yadam, an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Stanford University and researcher with expertise in emergency care clinical operations. She was, she was first trained in healthcare policy in Princeton University's School of Public and International Affairs. She subsequently worked as a healthcare industry management consultant in New York City for CSC Global Health Solutions Group and was the Dean of Dean's Office Chief of Staff at Drexel Medical School in Philadelphia. She completed her medical education at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, a master's in public health at Harvard with additional health policy training from Johns Hopkins. Sub she subsequently completed residency at Mass Massachusetts General and Brigham and Women's Hospital's Harvard affiliated program and completed a master's of science in clinical investigation at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Yadam is the principal investigator for the Stanford Emergency Care Health Services Research Data Coordinating Center. Uh, her research focuses on applications of evidence-based medicine to op optimize clinical operations, um, to target patient pathophysiology for time-sensitive conditions. And some of her past work has um, was associated with the ED Benchmarking Alliance and the Emergency Department Operations Study Group. So, Please, um, I'm very pleased and thank you, Dr. Yadam, for um, joining us today. I'll just um, start off and ask you about how did you, I've told you sort of the, the statistics, but how, how did you um, start in research? In, in many ways, well, thank you for that introduction. That was um, very kind and it's a reminder that I've been in school for a long time, <laughs> or that I was in school for a long time. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think I've always had um, an interest in the questions that drive research thinking. I don't know that, you know, earlier in my career really thought um, that I would end up being a researcher, but if, you know, you sort of asked me when I was 20, what I thought my ideal job would be, it'd be pretty much what I'm doing right now. So, um, you know, it's, it's been an interesting journey, but a lot of it is, um, you know, just always having an interest in how systems either enabled or prevented um, individuals from being able to do things and getting really um, intrigued by the variation in emotional response that doctors had to um, HMOs back in the 90s when they were very, very rigid and firm and constraining. And you know, realizing there was a strong business case for them, but clearly the people that I thought were in charge of healthcare business, you know, I learned otherwise down the road, um, were really, you know, uncomfortable with it. In fact, leaving medicine as a result of it. And I just was intrigued by that difference in perspective and comfort level. Um, did want to go to med school, but figured I wanted to learn about that first. And so I spent some time after college working on the finance side, really understanding how healthcare organizations work. I had a keen interest in academic medical centers as just being these engines that did lots of different things that were you know, important for society, but also for a lot of where um, the knowledge that we use in medicine, where it comes from, where they bubble up from, where it bubbles up from. And I uh, was just really intrigued by some of the people that I met that were being pinched quite a bit by the financial tightness of that time and really working with institutions to create solutions that, um, you know, just they had a very different perspective and thinking than the business-minded economists and you know, analysts that I was working with. Uh, it took a lot from that experience and transition really influenced my thinking to think about um, patient care from an organizational perspective. And I went into med school with that framework. And so every patient case, you know, every pneumonia, I was seeing how they were treated differently and why this antibiotic and what was style versus what was structure and what were guidelines versus 
you know, personal practice performance. And then I trained at a really, what I think is a great place in terms of people and culture and patient cases um, that had two separate hospitals are just fantastic, uh, but did things differently. Um, and really being a resident on both sides, really experiencing the interpretation of literature and how that can be done differently in different places. So there's almost like a different kind of science that was in that in between that I got really intrigued by um, that really seemed to extend from my experience with the system and then also understanding how individuals were affected in the system when they were trying to do their work, which were you know things I thought were good for society. So um, that experience really um, got me inter interested in variation in care. Uh, and that's all she wrote. <laughs> I mean, I really pursued that from an administrative perspective, trying to understand how to create roles that help to minimize variation and realize there's just some variation culturally and practice group-wise that was going to need to be there. Then wanted to find out, well, was it affecting patients and realize you need a certain skill set to answer those questions. And then said, if I'm going to, well, if I'm going to do those analyses, I need to share them with people and then realize there's a, there's a skill set for that. So I went and I got that and um, have just found it to be a really powerful way to take um, things that you see as a clinician that you just realize you know, it's different, it needs to be different, it could be different, we don't know which way it should be, and answer those questions and actually start to change the way that we do things. And it's slow, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so that's, wow, there's so much in, in what you just said there. Um, to go back to the HMO element, um, there's this disconnect, you, you pointed to this disconnect between sort of um, clinicians sense that we were spending too much in healthcare, but also um, this fear that HMOs were gonna impede on their practice. And um, do you find any um, connections to that hold the same sort of um, dynamic with variability, you know, in the sense of, you know, yeah. my, my distinctions, my variability is good, whereas everyone else's variability is bad, right? Yeah, this is a constant, I mean, it's a constant balance because you're right, there's good variability and bad variability and you wanna keep all the good variability and maybe identify it so you can, you can, fight, you can see it next time. And then there's bad variability that you wanna get rid of. Um, and then there's a the question of, you know, are there certain aspects of our practice that probably should be the same every time? Uh, and then what, what aspects of our practice should be? And so, you know, um, I sort of trained in, in medical school at the tail end of the evidence-based medicine movement which was, I, I, you know, it, it was interesting for me to think of it as a movement because it was just the way we did things that, you know, rather than it, you know, patients getting treated by individual doctor's preferences, you know, oh, for my septic patients, I get them Tylenol, let them ride it out, you know, oh, I let them sweat it out and then see how they're doing. And then I give two liters of fluid and antibiotics right away. You know, there's a three different, literally three different practice perspectives that I've ex experienced. And we sort of take it in turn to say, well, let's look at the physiology of patients with the state and see what it requires. And so I think there, there was really that frame shift. And I think in terms of systems practice, um, we are getting to the same point where there's some common set of things that we can probably all agree need to be done the same way. And I think guidelines have really stepped into the space. Um, decision rules have stepped into the space. And um, we really have been trying to figure out whether or not they get implemented the same place in every department. And how do you structure it so that every patient has the ability to have that decision rule applied to them as it's appropriate. So, um, you know, I think decision rules and really translating those to be more consistent within our care practice is probably the first step, but there are just lots of questions as to what part of our practice um, can we all agree really should be done the same way. And then there are other areas that I think are really where the art of medicine gets to play. 
Yeah, so um, again, just so much to dig into here. Um, so you came um, along in, in both the health policy, finance, and sort of management um, perspective and background as you entered medical school. And, and many people who do that end up in sort of operational leadership positions, appropriately so. Where did you get the added sort of perspective that you wanted to do research? Um, I started in the operations management sort of realm. And I think there, there are really two things that, um, and I, I'm currently in an operations role as well. So I can talk about that where I started in operations, ended in research, and now I'm currently in research op or clinical operations research, uh, clinical operations research space. Um, but I really started out with administration and operations is really like what I really was passionate about. I still am. Because um, I really wanted to understand the system in emergency medicine is really nice because we do have uh, a customized assembly line approach to delivering care where everybody gets there's a common set of tools we have we have a lot of tools to play with, but we can customize how they get applied to every patient, but they're going to come in the beginning of the assembly line through intake and triage um, or EMS through the back door very, through very similar processes, they're going to then get um, stratified for how soon they need to be seen. They're gonna get a bed versus chair. And so you can see the assembly lines are maybe like five of them running in parallel. And then we all have time on our side in terms of when, how, how late is too late to get a CT or chest X-ray? How long is too long to wait? And so there is a component of that that I really like in understanding of what of that should be structured versus what should be variable is something I like thinking about. But, um, but what, what I, I realized is that in, on the operation side, decisions need to be made really quickly. So often the data analyses that are done are really rudimentary and they weren't really getting at the true answers that I really felt like we should be exploring to figure out not just how are we going to do it like in this ED or in this day or in this section of the ED, but how do we as emergency medicine tackle these global issues? In fact, some of these issues extend outside of emergency medicine involve cardiology, clinical care practice, private, you know, primary care, home care, EMS systems, public health announcements. So how do we start asking questions that address those things? And even though they're very relevant to help inform a clinical operations decision, it just requires a different kind of analysis that needs to be more robust and needs to really weed out bias. And so um, that's where I realized that um, in order to really make the kind of impact I wanted to in the clinical operations environment, the way that we practiced, I, I needed to really lean into at least learning how research is done and then realize that there's just a lot of work to do there in emergency medicine. Um, and so I, you know, really my career is seated in that space along with, you know, practicing clinically. But here at Stanford, I actually am a member of the clinical operations team. A lot of um, what my role involves is finding we're really nimble operational environment. We have lots of initiatives, programs, we have the ear of the hospital, and you know, our nursing leadership team works really well with us. And, you know, we create interventions, everything from video visit program, we're seeing patients in the ED, actually two EDs covered by one doc who's basically in a telehealth role, but is able to use the entire, all the resources of the ED, but we don't have to staff one person in one ED. We have one person covering two EDs and actually an outpatient clinic and doing follow-ups. So how do we study that in a way that we can learn and study it in a robust way, and then also share the model with others so that other people in emergency medicine can learn things like it takes a six-month ramp up and know what the staffing looked like and what some of the challenges we ran into and publish about that and make that a contribution to the literature. So that, that's sort of some of the work that I do right now. And in addition to the much more clinical research focused work that I do on improving STEMI care outcomes and predictive modeling to help with that work. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. So STEMI is a great, 
example, right, of this um, conceptual assembly line. Of course, we don't treat people like products coming down the assembly line, but <laughs> but from a process sense, we do, right? Like there's a sequence of events that we'd like to see happen, and you know, you can you can name and list those things, and there are different people doing those different tasks at different points in the assembly line or in points in the line. Um, uh, it, it seems also though that we're also the masters of working in parallel. Is that um, a challenge for you in terms of your your research? Um, yes and no. <laughs> you know, in terms of um, so um, in terms of just workflow and day to day, um, you know, I definitely feel like when I'm in the ED, I, I turn on a different part of my brain than I do when I'm doing research. Um, you know, research is about slow and depth of thinking, whereas in emergency medicine, it's deep, fast, deep, fast, where you're thinking intently about somebody and you're on to the next thing. And there's a speed and gear shifting that doesn't quite happen on the research side. And so I think in terms of the day-to-day, -day, it's a very different way to think about your job um, on different days of the week. Uh, I do feel that you do need to stay current and active in the ED environment. And with research, your projects don't stop when you go to work in the ED. So being able to work in parallel, Mirrors yes. itself in my day-to-day -day work. <laughs> yeah, I know all about that. Yeah, so I see, I see how you can pull in the parallel thinking. That's great. Yeah, so it, it's similar. I mean, my team is working. You know, I have three staff members in my team. I have over seven trainees working on different projects, um, from undergrads to fellows and junior faculty. And so, you know, there's all those projects are still in motion. They're all on timelines. And so, when I do a couple shifts in the ED, all that can't stop. So being able to give all the patients my attention, but also keep the projects going as part of the art of building the team that works even when you're physically not the one, you know, doing everything at every step on the assembly line. Um, but in terms of STEMI, you're right. It is, it is a process and that's almost why it's been my prototype because I think we can all agree that all these things should happen. Door to EKG in 10 minutes, you know, time to PCI in 90, door to thrombolysis in 30 minutes. Like everybody's on board. Um, and so then it really creates the, the baseline assumptions to then start to look at, well, what do we actually do? And how does that actually work? Um, and we've done everything from create new metrics and say, yes, our numbers nationally look great, but we measure by medians. And if you remember what a median is, it's just basically what's happening at the 50th percentile line. But we say we're gonna do this for everybody. So if we look at percent compliance with target, we're actually not doing so well. And we look at who is above percent compliance for target. Those patients are very different than those we hit the target for. They actually are disproportionately representing um, this uh, vulnerable populations. Um, and that's something we need to pay attention to. And so, um, you know, that really takes, you know, some of the statistical thinking, the metrics and measures, and then there's a question, how do you fix it? Understanding how fast we move, how little information we have. That's actually the fun stuff I'm working on now, um, which really involves embedding artificial intelligence into our care systems. And so um, STEMI has been a great prototype for just that reason. Yeah, wow. So. Um... I'm going to shift gears a bit just because I've, I was, I'm still working a little bit through your impressive um, sort of, you know, short CV that I said at the beginning. So I'm fascinated by the fact that you worked in a dean's office as chief of staff. Did that influence your career? That must have influenced your career such that you, you know, are in academics now. Yeah, it did. Um... I, I was worked in a dean's office at a time where a medical school and a university were coming together and really thinking about how the medical school, how the medical school defined itself uh, in the mix of becoming part of this bigger university and really 
being able to pull like the historical graduates and the current students and the existing staff um, together with this identity shift was a lot of the work that we did. There's also the, the business management side of it, as you know, you're putting two financial institutions together, you're putting two sets of employees together and really watching and learning how, how are academic medical centers set up? How are they structured? What are the incentives that individuals have when they decide to work in one? What are the incentives that a department chair has, both in terms of taking care of their people in their department and also a, a piece of their specialty, if you will, but also needing to respond to the larger organization? And what are some of the pressures that don't always align? So, you know, doing a good job is, you know, for your, for your department is also doing a good job as a steward of the institution. And just seeing tensions there and then also people who are good at aligning to reduce those tensions, to get win-wins. Um, just saw a lot of great management. I saw a lot of management that could be improved. Um, and learned a lot from the dean who navigated and the dean's, the dean's office team who, who I worked with um, carefully. They said, we're going to look into those numbers. I basically met Maya, go look into those numbers. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> right. and so I learned a lot from just being a fly on the wall in those conversations to be able to, um, you know, eventually like see what the books look like and understand like how, what are, how does a dean's office think about, how does a school of medicine think about its entire unit? So, um, you know, I just had a lot of familiarity and then also was just intrigued by the kind of work academic medical centers did that, um, you know, has made it so that this is a great home for me in academia. Because I'll, I'll say, even as someone who's been in academic medicine for some time, that many, many faculty don't really think or get an insight into how the whole thing works. Like you probably got, a, you know, you probably got that perspective and, you know, and just what you were saying, not only in general to be in any dean's office, but specifically at Drexel, you know, you were at a unique time with a really unique perspective because many, most medical schools already have this sort of clinical and um, academic med school of medicine already linked. And so was that exciting to be there when there were no sort of preset assumptions of how things would work? It was. I mean, there are just there are a lot of um, culture questions on the table. It was exciting to be really explicit about what pieces of history, because it was now history, right? Sort of taking on a new identity. What pieces of history just needed to be part of the future, and why? And having a lot of those why discussions. And some of them were whys where everybody agreed, and others were whys where we just decided that even though it was really important to some people, it wasn't something that needed to persist. There wasn't consensus for that being part of the future identity. Um, and what of that is medicine and what of that is our history. Um, you know, this is a particular clinical environment where emergency medicine was a big piece of the history. And so um, I think some of my, my general cultural interest in emergency medicine sort of was peaked there amongst other things, because it's just a fantastic specialty. But, um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed um, being part of those discussions and really thinking about um, what an academic medical center as a clinical identity wanted to be for the future. Wow. Well, um, I'm going to pivot again here, and yes. we ask everybody in this in this um, series about um, in influential people and particularly mentors in your career. I think that's an important topic um, to talk about for a resident and medical student series. So, who who uh, influenced your career that you'd like to identify? Oh gosh, um, I want to say that uh, in terms of you know going into emergency medicine. Um, you know, I did most of my clinical rotations at Cooper Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, um, which was one of the campuses for Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And I liked everything in med school. I liked, I liked everything. And uh, 
at the end of the day, it was a group of clinicians who I said, you know what, when I'm in attending, I want to be like that. Um, and so it really was that group. And there's a culture there that I think is um, a lot of the best of emergency medicine. And I do feel like in some ways, I hope I've grown up to be, you know, to take on some of those same characteristics. In terms of my um, perspective on, you know, impact in medicine, um, you know, Senator Bill Frist was a board of trustee at my university. He was, you know, very present and on campus. And I had a couple of interactions with him um, when I was deciding to be, you know, was I going to be a pre-med who did biology versus public policy? Like, does that make sense to do public policy? And really getting the encouragement that thinking about the system was something we needed more doctors to do. Um, and so that was not, you know, that was not something to think lightly of. And in fact, um, it was something that he strongly encouraged. And, you know, I ended up doing it. Um, I also encountered Bro Harlan Brutland, who was the director general for the World Health Organization around the same time, who really helped me to understand how public health training um, was really important for thinking about, about a population as your patient, in addition to individual people as your patient, and how it's a very similar perspective with different toolkit. And she encouraged me to get both toolkits. So I think um, those conversations most definitely influenced the way that I've thought about my impact in healthcare, how I look at individual patients, and clearly took me on that journey from you know, being interested in systems, um, you know, learning about variation and being curious about it, asking questions, realizing research is the way to answer some of those questions and then really putting me where I am now. Yeah, wow. Um, I, I would like to ask a little bit, I think we've touched on it a bit, but I guess mm -hmm. um, the question is, what are you working on now? That's something we ask everyone. Yeah. You touched a bit on it, but let me, let me ask it in a way of what's, most exciting for you looking forward? Oh, gosh. Um, so I think it's really interesting that I, I started out just really interested in variation emergency care and just felt like we should just fix that. And um, we should just all figure out the right way to do it and just do that. And um, and I spent a lot of years, at least for this focused area, STEMI exploring that. And we didn't realize how long it would take <laughs> or how hard it would be, but it's very rewarding to do. Um, that sort of led me into the space where I started thinking about, well, how do we fix it? Like, it's, you know, it's easy to say, well, we should just fix that, but how do you fix it? What exactly is the problem? Where are the hurdles? And realizing that, you know, over this period of time, we had electronic health records were born and are now like more than normally exception. That was not the case when I was a med student, still on paper charts, started residency writing on paper charts. I'm not that old. <laughs> and so, and so right, this yeah, is, me too. I'm with you. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it was realizing we still have lots of practices that are reflective of when we were on paper. And I think ED intake is one of them. So we have this big old computer that can do all these super fancy things that like R and SAS and Stata can do, um, but like we don't use any of it. Like not with the same level of sophistication that I think we might do in other industries might do, or we might think of, you know, our iWatches and our iPhones and you know, our droids like they do. But our electronic health record systems can do a lot of those things. And we have all this data in there and all we do is put data in and put data in. And so I've been spending a lot of time like, well, if we don't know a lot about the patient when they first walk in, but this computer does, like how do we use all that stuff to help us figure out what we should be doing the fastest for people who need it right now? And not just like general gestalt or guessing or giving non-clinical staff members checklists because they're the first people that patients meet. Like, I just feel like we can be more sophisticated in that emergency medicine. We've done it in professionalizing our workspace from ERs to emergency departments, from being ER docs to emergency physicians. 
Um, and this is just the next level. So that's really taking me into the space of how do you take, let computers calculate things and drive decision-making for things we don't need to think about anymore. We can all agree they need to be done a certain way um, and refine our calculations for how we do that to be even better than humans. Uh, and I've been spending a lot of time on door to EKG. How do you identify who, who really needs an EKG? Because we do too many EKGs, we get them all in the wrong people and all the people who need them get them late or not all of them, but many of them get them late. And how do we just line that all up so the right people get EKGs and people who don't need them don't get EKGs and I don't have to put that have to put in my face when I'm working only to say it's negative and interrupt a conversation with a patient when it wasn't necessary. So um, we're really building, um, refining predictive models to help with that using sort of the framework of what do we know in 10 minutes? both like right now, but also the entire electronic health record using machine learning and natural language processing, as well as like, you know, old school predictive modeling. And then how do you get it in the system? So it just like calculates at the right point with the right provider. And so we're really using um, electronic health records, um, best practice advisories, uh, basically decision alerts, uh, best practice advisories for Epic, decision alerts more broadly speaking, but to really work as artificial intelligence to make those models actually act in the clinical environment to get us to do things differently that we might have otherwise missed. So this is a whole space where I'm working mostly with clinical informaticists and statisticians who are like statistical inference folks versus machine learning. I've learned a lot about those things. Again, 20 years ago, I would have never thought that I'd know so much about machine learning, um, let alone work with informaticists. And um, that just wasn't where I thought my career would go, but it made sense for figuring out how do you fix this problem that was driving me nuts as a resident um, uh, but it's cool to really let the journey teach you what you need to know. Yeah, I guess a related question. What, what surprises you most about where you are today and where you are now? You mentioned um, a few things like that, but. Yeah, I mean, I, so, you know, I didn't, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that my team and how I spent a good part of my day would be working with folks, so many different kinds of folks from different disciplines solving emergency medicine problems. So I feel like it's cool to be able to bring the emergency medicine problem and use case, and then leverage their really crazy expertise. All these people have spent 15 to 20 years of their life on one particular thing, getting really good at it. And then having five or six of us that have done the same thing, really pour our brain power into solving an emergency medicine problem, the fix for like the whole specialty, plus I hope, fix for the whole specialty, you know, it's really cool. Um, and I, I'm just surprised at that dynamic, that this is not something I expected. You know, you go to med school and you do residency because you want to see patients and be a good emergency physician. But to see us lend, you know, our environment and what we do to other people for them to exercise their school skills is, it's a surprising process um, to be part of. I'm also, I, I mean, I've been surprised, probably less so now, just like how slow research is. <laughs> it just takes a long time to like answer. I'm just like, I thought, you know, clinical operations, you have a question, you look at some data, you make a decision two weeks later, maybe, maybe even sooner. You know, research, you could be working on the same thing for like four or five years if you're not careful. And um, it's really had me interested in pragmatic research. How do you move a little bit faster to answer questions where people are making decisions while you're doing your math? So if you wait five years, there are a lot of patients who didn't have the advantage or a pretty close answer to the truth. And so um, that's an area I've dug into too. But research is, it surprised me um, how long it can take. Yeah, I think um, that's, that's something that we all wake up to. <laughs> We're all <laughs> constantly waking up to. Um, and often take longer than we would like it to take. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to be respectful of your time and thank you. I, we're going to close with a question um, we always ask, which is what advice do you have for medical students or residents regarding research? Oh, that's a good one. I would say um, I think it's important for every doctor to know how research works because everything 
everything you do practice-wise that you've been taught is really based half of it on research. And the other half is an opportunity to figure out how to do it right. Um, in emergency medicine, we spent a lot of time. Um, a lot of our practice was built off of borrowed research from other areas that we sort of modified and inference to work in our space. We have a lot of work to do. Um, you know, learn how it works, figure out if you want to be one of the ones doing it and also know bad research when you see it. <laughs> That's good advice. Well, um, Dr. Yayadam, thank you so much for taking time and um, sharing your insights, which are considerable. Um, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. All right.